You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Great to see all of y'all this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Matt Tolander. I'm one of the pastors on staff. We're going to continue our series this morning through the book of Colossians, but I wanted to start just by telling y'all a story. I was, uh, a few years ago, I was out of town for a wedding, and uh, the day after the wedding, I was flying home, and I was running late to the airport, which is often the case with me, and so I was already, I was feeling impatient, and I was already feeling anxiety and under a lot of stress, and then I got to the airport, and I saw what the security line looked like. And it was just cattle call. I mean, all backed up. I had no idea if I was going to make it. It was so busy that at the front of the line, they, were, they had given up on just sending people through the, the body scanning imaging thing. And they were using the old metal detectors just to try and get people through. And so they moved me into this metal detector line. And I'm behind this guy who has a giant backpack. And I'm like, nothing good ever happens when you're stuck <laughs> in the security line behind the guy with the giant backpack. And so he's getting all the devices out of the backpack, trying to figure out what what does and doesn't go and what has to come out. And they try and get him through the metal detector, and he steps through it, and it beeps. So back and back up, back up. Anything in your pockets? He's like, oh, yeah, my phone. I'm like, okay, that seems like an obvious one. Like, you know that one can't. So they, you know, come through again. And so he steps into the thing again, and it beeps him again. And he feels around again. He's like, oh, my keys. And he pulls out a key ring, and it's not like, it's like 800 keys. It's so many keys. And I'm like, this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And I'm right behind him, and I'm just like, I mean, nerves running. I'm like, I'm going to miss my flight. And was feeling so impatient and so stressed out. And they, they bring him a third time, come on through. And he steps, and it beeps again. So finally, they pull him off to the side to just do the wand. And they do the wand, and they're doing it, and it's, it beeps right about here. And he lifts up his shirt. And he's got a belt buckle on about this big. Like big enough that you could put a gift shop on it. And I'm watching all this happen. And I'm like, obviously, this guy has just never flown before or something in his life. Like, you know, like we've been doing this for a long time now. We should all know how TSA works. And eventually I did make it onto my flight. And uh, as I was sitting on the plane, I kept thinking about that guy. And I kept thinking about how I was so impatient and stressed out. And I realized that because I was in that mode of impatience, I missed something. Because I started to see that guy as a parable. Um, Have you ever felt in life like you were stuck and then realized that moving forward meant leaving something behind? Did you ever realize that there was something in your life that couldn't travel with you into the next thing that you were doing? Have you ever felt like God was calling you into something new, some kind of new experience or new depth of relationship or new adventure with him. But you knew that in order to enter into it, it meant you would have to let go of something old. That's how I felt when I left town to go to that wedding. As I sat on the plane, I realized the guy in the security line is me. Because there was areas in my life where I was trying to move forward, but I was stuck because I was holding on to things that I had to let go of if I really wanted to enter into what God had for me. There were things in my life that belonged to an old me, like an old self, and I wasn't that person anymore. And so in order to fully be the new person who I knew I had become, I needed to surrender the things that were keeping me attached to the old me 
that I really needed to leave behind. And I think we've all been confronted in our lives with different versions of this choice. I mean, all of us know what it's like to realize we have to leave the old behind to join God in the new. And there's obvious things that we have to leave behind, right? I mean, like, we know we have to leave sin behind. We know we have to leave unhealthy patterns behind, emotional unhealth. We know we have to leave it behind. We know we have to leave addictions and compulsions behind. You know, a job that's crushing us, a relationship that's unhealthy, we know we have to leave those things behind. But some of us even know what it's like to have to leave good things behind, right? I mean, you love your job. It's not crushing you. You love your job. And things could go really well for you if you stay, but you know that God is calling you into something else, and so you have to go. The relationship is good. It's not unhealthy. It's not bad. But you know that God has something different planned for you and something new that you have to step into. And so as painful as it is, you have to say goodbye and you have to let go. I mean, leaving the old to enter the new with God is it's maybe like the most basic sort of spiritual move that there is. You could call it repentance. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest moves but it's a basic move, and it's, it's the starting point move of a spiritual life. I mean, the genius of 12-step programs, if you know anything about 12-step programs, is they're basically a framework that teaches people how to do this. It teaches people how to recognize the things in my life I have to leave behind, how to trust that God can restore me to fullness, and how to turn those things over to him and turn myself over to his care and trust. I mean, this is why people experience transformation in 12-step programs. They teach people to make this spiritual move. And it's something that churches often struggle with because unlike recovery groups, churches are typically not a pretense-free zone. Um, but one way or the other, one way or the other, we have to learn this spiritual skill of trusting God enough to leave the old behind and to bring our whole self, heart, soul, and mind to join God in the new life that he longs to give us. It's the starting point of every new adventure with God. Over and over again in the pages of Scripture, what we see is that God is calling people from the old into the new. And making that move always involves leaving some place or leaving something or even leaving someone behind. God calls Abraham out of the land of his father's. He calls David from the sheep fields to the palace. Ruth leaves her home, her people, and her God to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. When Jesus steps on the scene in the New Testament, person after person after person leaves the old behind for something new with him. Nathaniel left the fig tree. Peter and Andrew and James and John left their boats and nets. Matthew left the tax booth in the middle of the workday. The man with the legion of demons left the graveyard in his right mind, and the Samaritan woman left her jar and her shame at the well and went running back into the town to tell the, the story. I mean, there's so many examples all through Scripture of moments where people had to leave something old behind, and they stepped into something new with God. But there's one person in Scripture who stands out as sort of an emblem of the transformation that can happen in a person's life when they encounter Jesus, and the change in his life was so dramatic that it functions in the Western cultural memory as like the, the paradigmatic example of a conversion. And of course, I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. Rising star in his religious context, gifted student of the scriptures, zealous keeper of religious purity, violent persecutor of the first Jesus followers until he encountered Jesus himself 
And in that moment, a line was drawn down the middle of his life, before and after, old and new. The old Paul can't come to the phone right now. He's dead. Paul met Jesus, and it changed everything about him to the degree that even even scholars today who are non-religious or who don't believe Jesus is God, even scholars of Paul today who are coming from an atheistic or a secular standpoint, they have to admit two things about Paul that are undisputable facts historically. One, something happened to him that produced that change in his life. And two, Paul attributed it to the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Those are the two indisputable facts of Paul's life that even people who don't believe in God have to admit are true about him. And so listen to just one of Paul's statements about what made that change possible. This is from 2 Corinthians. I promise we're getting to Colossians soon. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about what has happened that's made this change possible. He says, the love of Christ controls us since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So then from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Look, the new has come. And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has given us this message of reconciliation. See, when Paul encountered Jesus for the first time, his life was turned upside down. And he came to understand that God was folding the future back onto the present. God's future verdict of judgment had been rendered in the present time in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then in Jesus' resurrection, God had initiated the new creation. And so the whole history of creation is split in half, old on one side, new on the other. Everything has changed. I mean, no wonder Paul abandoned his old identity, right? Why did he do that? Because he couldn't keep it. He could never keep it anyway. It belonged to the old, and the old had passed away, and the new had come. In this morning's passage from Colossians 3, Paul is transitioning into a section in the letter where he's going to talk about what it means to be made new in Christ. He's going to show us seven ways that God is making us new. Seven ways, okay? So um, instead of reading the whole thing at once, I'm going to take it section by section. I want to just invite us to stand as we read each section. So please stand, if you're able, for the reading of the first few verses from Colossians chapter 3. Paul writing, he says, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Keep thinking about things above, not things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will be revealed in glory with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We see a few different ways in this chunk of verses that God is making us new. The first is that we have a new position. 
We have a new position as human beings, and our new position is in Christ, because he says we've died with Christ, and we've been raised with Christ. So what happened is that when you put your trust in Jesus, you traded a life that leads to death for a death that leads to true life, right? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it for eternal life. Paul talks about this relationship all in his writings. This, this phrase, in Christ, and different versions of it, appears 160 times in the writings of Paul. More than any other theological theme, Paul grounds his whole understanding of um, what it means to participate in a life with God in this reality. When he says, we've actually been joined to Jesus in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. So for example, he says in Galatians 2.20, very familiar verse for a lot of us. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul sees his old identity as having been crucified with Christ. It died with Christ. And so when Paul was raised with Christ then, a new identity came up with it. Look at the way he he writes in Romans chapter 6. And you'll see the baptism metaphor here. He says in Romans 6, Therefore, we've been buried with him, meaning Christ, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul is putting his finger on the human problem, our human problem apart from Christ. Our problem apart from Christ is that we are in sin. We are enslaved to sin. Um, Sometimes he'll say we are in Adam, meaning we're tied up in Adam, who represents humanity in all of its sinful pride and rebellion against God. And when we're talking about sin, the thing that we have to understand and remember is that sin is not just something that we do. Sin is not just a category of behavior. Sin is something that does things to us. Sin is an external power that is loose in creation, and it dominates us from outside, but it's also an internal force that works within us to prevent us from fulfilling our relational obligations to God. And so you could say that we are mutually indwelled with sin. We live in sin, and sin lives in us, and that's our problem. It dominates us from without, and it corrupts our actions and behavior, our thoughts, and our our spirit from within. It's inside and outside. And so in order to deal with that, we have to be mutually indwelled by Christ, Instead, And here's how Paul says that Jesus resolved the problem of us being in sin and sin being in us. This is from Colossians 2 that we talked about last week. He says this, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. 
That is how Jesus resolves the problem of the internal sin in our lives, is that he takes it to the cross and he cancels the legal record of our indebtedness. But he doesn't just free us from the sin within. He frees us from the sin without because Paul says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so he forgives the sin that's in us. He triumphs over the sin that is all around us. And we are then brought into a new relationship of mutual indwelling, where instead of us being in sin and sin being in us, we are now in Christ. And Christ is now in us. The air that we're breathing that's all around us and inside and moving through our body is no longer sin. It's Christ. And this is why Paul says in our passage this morning, your life is hidden with Christ in God. The word hidden implies two things. It implies concealment, but it also implies safety. And so you hide something that's precious and important to you, right? Because that's how you keep it safe. You, have, you hide it away. And so what Paul is saying here is that that's what Jesus has done with your life. It's, it's precious. It's important to him. And so he's chosen to protect it. And he's, he's tucked it away. He's hidden it away in his vault where it can be safe and where it will be protected. Sin can't touch it. Death can't touch it. Satan can't touch it. No human being can touch it. It can't be taken away from you because it can't be taken away from Christ. It's fixed, secure, and Jesus has hidden it away to keep it safe for you until you meet him face to face. This is the destiny that's available to us in relationship with Christ. Uh, And we're seeing in this letter that God is folding the future onto the present time. The newness that Christ brings, actually, it changes things about how we're meant to live on earth. It doesn't just give us the future hope that our life is hidden with Christ and God. It opens up new possibilities for us as human beings on earth because it gives us a new priority and a new perspective. So not only do we have a new position of in Christ, but we have a new priority and a new perspective, which is, Paul says, uh, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And he says again, keep thinking about things above. The construction, keep seeking and keep thinking, implies ongoing disciplined action. Seek and think. It's a pursuit that requires both parts of the person, right? The inner part, the inner immaterial part, and also the outer material part, the inner life and the outer life. In order to grow spiritually, those two parts of us have to be united in their pursuit of the same thing. You can't pursue God in the inner life and not pursue God, the things of God in the outer life, and expect to experience spiritual power. You also can't do the things of the outer life with any kind of spiritual power or effectiveness if you're not receiving life from Christ. And so we have to seek and also think. Both are required. Um, the problem is that like, we don't naturally think about and seek those things. We don't naturally think about and seek the things above. And so we have to practice it. We have to practice it and turn it into a habit. And the spiritual practices that help with this, I mean, prayer and meditation are a starting point. Reading and memorizing scripture will help you think, dwell on, and seek the things above. Theological reflection will help you seek the things above. God uses these practices to form Christ in us through the power of the Spirit. And practices are difficult. I mean, anyone in here who's ever tried to implement a new spiritual practice has probably found that it was a bumpy start. 
and we really had to stick with it to develop some kind of consistency and faithfulness, but we have to put these, the effort into spiritual practices and seeking and thinking about the things above. Listen, not so that we can accomplish our own transformation or growth, because we can't, but because the spiritual practices are the means of relationship with God. And if they're the means of relationship with God, that means they're the means of receiving what we need from God for our spiritual life. And God has something that we desperately need. He has a new power. He has a new power for us. Our new position comes with a new priority and a new perspective. And it also comes with a new power. Christ who is your life. He says, when Christ who is your life appears, you too will be revealed in glory with him. So Christ is the cause and the source of our new life. It's his death and resurrection that make it possible. Like when we're in Christ, he is sustaining us like a vine is sustaining its branches. And apart from him, we can't do anything. That's what he said, right? Apart from, Jesus, from Christ, we have no power. We have no wisdom. We have no identity. We have no hope. We have no life. Jesus said, um, uh, he's, yeah, he said, apart from me, you will do nothing. <laughs> Paul says a couple of very interesting things earlier in this letter that we need to jump back to and pull into this chapter. Um, he says the same thing two different ways in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 2. So in, in Colossians 1, verse 19, Paul says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Christ. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Now, Paul is mentioning this to them because there's false teachers in the in the church who are saying that Jesus is not, is not fully God. He's some kind of spiritual being who's bridging the gap between uh, you know, humanity and the spiritual realm. Um, but Paul wants to make the point, no, Jesus is fully God. All of the fullness of God dwells in him. And he reiterates this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been filled in him. I didn't hear any gasps. That's like an insane thing for him to say. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ's body. And because you've been joined to Jesus Christ's body, having died and raised with him, all of the fullness of God dwells in Christ in you. The power that you receive in Christ is God's own power. The wisdom that you get from Christ is God's own wisdom. The life you receive from Christ is God's own life. I mean, that, that is a kind of empowerment that like, I, I'm not sure how to begin to wrap my mind around what could actually be possible in my life if, if I were to access that power um, on any kind of like consistent or regular basis. But this is actually what we're called to do. God gives all of these gifts to us, power and wisdom and life and hope. He gives them to us in Christ through the Spirit, and he gives them to us for a purpose, for a purpose. Paul says in, back, back in chapter 1, he says, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now listen to this. He says, to this end, 
I strenuously contend with all of the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So what we're seeing is that when Christ empowers us through the Spirit, he does it for a purpose. He does it for his purpose for us. He empowers us to be his witnesses. He empowers us to serve our neighbors. He empowers us even to love and serve our enemies. He empowers us on mission. He empowers us for the ministry of reconciliation. It's like we have two cables coming out of us. And with one, we plug into Christ for power. And with the other, we plug into the world. And it's only when both of those are connected that power actually flows through our life and something can happen. If we're trying to receive wisdom and power and insight from above without any kind of outlet where that's actually making it into our lives uh, in terms of love for our neighbor and even our enemy, then we're disconnected. Power is not going to flow. And likewise, if we're trying to plug into the world, but we're disconnected from God, we have no power. We have nothing to offer. And so to recap from these first four verses, here's what we have. Because of our new position, which is being in Christ, dying and rising with him, we've received this new power, Christ who is our life. And with that new power, we can pursue a new priority and a new perspective, which is seeking and thinking about the things above. And all of that is sealed up uh, in what I'm calling a new possibility, which is kind of an insufficient label, and I'm going to correct it in a moment. Um, But it gives us... uh, a new possibility, uh, because it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you too will be revealed in glory. Now, if you're not in Christ, then that's a possibility for you, and I encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity to be united with Christ and receive the life that he can give you. But if you are in Christ, then it's not a possibility. It's an inevitability. You will have it. Here's the witness of the rest of Scripture to this truth. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Or in 1 John 3, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this is, this is maybe the most comforting part of the whole passage for me, because none of y'all can relate to this, I'm sure, but like, I tend to be kind of impatient with myself when I see there's an area where I need to grow. Like When my spiritual immaturity <laughs> makes its way into the outside of my life, when the parts inside of me, which are still the old self, which are you know, not Christ-like, make their way into my outer life, I, it bothers me. I mean, I can... I can be very hard on myself about it. Um, I'm different than I used to be in so many ways, and yet I don't love God (laughs) as much as I want to. I don't love the people in my life nearly as well as I would like to. And I'm hard on myself about it all the time. I'm, you know, maybe I'm alone up here. But if you tend to feel that way also, I want to share something that has helped me with this. This is from Frederick Buechner. It's in his his room, uh, his book, a uh, book is called A Room Called Remember, A Room Called Remember by Frederick Buechner, um, who just always knows the right way to put it. He wrote this. He said, the final secret, I think, is this. The words, you shall love the Lord your God, become in the end less a command than a promise. The words, you shall love the Lord your God, are not just a command. They're a promise. 
if you're in Christ, the transformation of your life isn't just a possibility. It's a promise. You will be like him because God takes full responsibility for the life that belongs to him. If he started working on you, he is not clocking out until the job is totally done. So when you feel stuck, right, when you feel like you want to move into the new and it's so hard to let go of the old and you're in that struggle in the in-between, um, what it is is it's an opportunity to trust that God won't abandon you and that he'll finish what he started in your life. Because when Christ, who is our life, appears, we'll be revealed with him in glory. So God is doing that work in us, kind of whether we participate, it, whether we participate in it or not is our choice. So we can participate in the work that God is doing in our lives and we'll be fully alive, or we can resist the work that God is doing in our lives and we'll be miserable, probably. Um, and that's what Paul is going to address next in our passage, because living into the fullness of new life in Christ requires new patterns of behavior. Um, and the new patterns themselves are in next week's sermon, but in order for the new patterns to come in, old patterns have to go out. Um, and those are the patterns that Paul names in our passage this morning. So if you would, please stand for the reading of the next section of Colossians chapter 3. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. The examples Paul gives in these two lists in this section, uh, these things, these, these patterns, these behaviors that belong to the old earthly nature, they fall into two categories. And the first is he, he is talking about patterns of animalistic desire. He's talking about patterns of unrestrained desire. The sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, all of these are related to one another. They all come from the same place in our heart, which is um, this place that, uh, that really just wants my wants met. Like not wants my needs met, but wants my wants met. I want even more than my needs. Um, and so it's not loving a person when we're acting out of that place. It's satisfying an appetite for sex, for pleasure, for wealth, for power, whatever it is. It's I want it, and so I'm going to have it, and we want to be our own God. And this is especially true where sex is concerned. If you want to know what Paul means by sexual immorality, um, he's referring to Leviticus 18. I encourage you to go back and read in the law and see what Leviticus 18 says. And what you're going to see is that God actually has a much higher view of the importance of our body than we do. God cares much more about our body than we do. It's much more precious to him than it is to, uh, to most of us because he designed it and he made it. And then when sin came in and corrupted it, Jesus Christ came to earth physically and materially and in his physical body was broken to make yours whole. And he bought it with his blood. And so you're not your own. Your body is not your own. Your life is hidden in Christ, which means that your body is inseparably joined 
to his body. And so the arrogance and pride in our hearts that wants to be our own God, it wants to, to call all the shots for what I do in my life, with my money, with my body, in my relationships, that arrogance has to be put to death. It belongs to the old self. It belongs to death. And so it's not just these patterns of desire that Paul is going to talk about. Certainly that's one. But the second list, he, he mentions these patterns of disunity. They're patterns of disunity in the church community, anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language, and deceit. Um, it, it's translated filthy language in the NIV, but the Greek word means abusive or humiliating language. So it's not just, it, the point is not the words themselves. The point is not that I cussed. The point is the effect that the words have in the heart of the person who heard me say them. That's what Paul is concerned about. Um, because words have these just tremendous power um, to enter people's hearts and either bless or curse them, and then we carry them around. The words can build up and tear down. They can encourage and discourage. Our words can even condemn and absolve. And so that's why Paul is so insistent about what kind of language we use. But it's not just the language. He's talking about anger and rage and malice. So these produce disunity in the body. Um, just like God cares about the integrity of our physical body, he also cares about the integrity of his spiritual body, of the body of Christ, of the church. Um, and so anger compromises the unity of the body of Christ. Anger is an emotion that is best left to God. You may think that you're capable of righteous anger. I doubt it. I don't think I am. I think probably only Jesus ever was. Um, so I think we can be safe to leave anger to him. Um, and the same with rage, with, with, with slander, you know, the, um, the urge to correct the record on someone's reputation, you know, to bring someone down a bit. You might even be telling the truth about them, but you're telling the truth in a mean-spirited way to somebody else, right? Slander. These things compromise the integrity of the body of Christ. The same way that sexual immorality compromises the integrity of our individual spiritual bodies. So if sexual immorality is violence against our own spiritual body, then anger and rage and malice is violence against the body of Christ, of which we are a part. And so that is also violence against our own body. So Paul gives us these new, these new patterns. They're new patterns of behavior that, that are made possible for us because of our new position and the new power that we've received in Christ. And the purposes of these new patterns um, is to strengthen and reinforce the new person. They're here to strengthen and reinforce the new person. Let's just stand for the last section uh, of Colossians 3, please. The new person. Paul writes, do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In, please be seated. Sorry, this is the word of the Lord. I just got so excited to talk about, <laughs> about this passage. When Paul says that Christ is all and is in all, what he means is related to what he said in the passage that I read at the very beginning where he says, we don't regard anyone from an outward human point of view. 
What he means is that the death and resurrection of Christ and the inauguration of the new creation um, does away with all human categories of like hierarchy and power and worth. And so in this world, that's what he's doing in the, the list in verse 11. There's no Gentile or Jew. There's no ethnic superiority in the new creation of God. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no superiority between the people who do spiritual practices and the people who don't. Um, there's no barbarian, no Scythian. There's no spiritual uh, hierarchy or worth and hierarchy in terms of economic status or anything like that. Slave or free, nothing. Everything is level. The human point of view has been overruled by the perspective of God and human personhood has been redefined in Jesus Christ. So where before the fundamental fact of a human person was that they were created in the image of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection now means that the fundamental fact of any human person, the first fact about them, what makes them human is that they are someone for whom Christ died. That is the most true, most fundamental fact of any person's identity that you will ever meet. Now, he's going to talk about the old self, putting off the old self and having put on the new self. The new self and the old self um, are not really in competition with one another. It feels that way sometimes. Um, But they're not in competition with one another. They don't coexist. Uh, The scripture never speaks about the old nature and the new nature coexisting in a person. It's not there's a good wolf and a bad wolf inside of you, and whichever one you feed gets stronger, right? It's not the devil and God raging inside you. Um, If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, and the old has passed away. And so the image is actually of putting on new clothes. The image is putting on new clothes. Have you ever noticed that, like, in in film and literature and stuff, that new clothes often function as a metaphor for change that's happening in a, in a character's life, right? Season two of The Bear, Richie's the slacker and he goes to work at the nice restaurant and he comes back to his restaurant and he's like, I get it now. Um, and he, he comes into the office and, and the sister's like, oh, you're wearing a suit. And he says, I wear suits now, <laughs> right? Outward, he's putting on a new self. Or, um, you know, crazy stupid love. Right, Ryan Gosling is teaching Steve Carell how to not be a loser, and the first thing they do is go shopping for clothes, right? Be better than the gap. Um, I love the Mighty Ducks movies growing up. In all three of those movies, the team gets new uniforms. All three of them get new uniforms. And, and what does it symbolize? Well, it symbolizes their, their, their identities coalescing together, and they're actually becoming a team. Um, there's a really powerful example of this in, uh, in Friday Night Lights, in season four, when Coach Taylor goes to coach the football team at East Dillon High School, which is the neglected high school that doesn't have any money to fund the program. And so the team doesn't even have uniforms. They just have a bunch of random equipment that doesn't match, and they stink. I mean, they, they play like garbage, and they're wearing garbage. And then there's a moment where they burn all the uniforms on the 50-yard line. What are they doing? They're putting the old self away. They're putting the past away. And then they get new uniforms. And then all of a sudden, they're really good at football, right? That's the idea of putting on the new self. The change has happened. It's true. The new is the reality in your life. But you have to put on the new self. Try it on. Dress like it, right? Live like it. Enjoy it. Put on the new self. Like, if only it were that easy. 
and it's not. The problem uh, is that we are a new creation, but we're still trying to hold on to things that belong to the old person, right? You're a new creation, but you can't let go of that grudge. You're a new creation, but you can't let go of that anger. You're a new creation, but you're not using your body the way someone who's being renewed in the image of Christ uses their body. You're a new creation, but you're still working really, really hard to prove to yourself and God and everyone that you're good enough and that you matter and that your life on earth is justified. And whatever the things are, the things that you're carrying, that you're trying to take through, they belong to the old person. And the things that you're carrying from your old self, they don't have any place in the new life that God has for you. They can't come along. Why? Because the old has passed away. It's dead. And you can't enjoy the fullness of life when you're still holding on to the things that belong to death. You cannot enjoy the fullness of life while you're gripping on and holding on to things that belong to death. So here's what we have to do. Give to death what belongs to death. Give to death what belongs to death. If Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all our sin and took it on the cross, when he died, he took our sin with him into the grave. But then when he rose again, the sin stayed down. He left it in the grave because the grave is where sin belongs. And so if you're a brand new creation in Jesus Christ because you died with him and rose with him, if you're alive in Christ but still holding on to what Jesus put in the grave, then it's time to give to death what belongs to death. Because whatever belongs to the old is on the road to death anyway, is passing away. So give to death what belongs to death. It's the only way to enter into the new with God. And if we don't, what's going to happen is instead of entering into the new, we're just going to settle for the old again tomorrow. And we're going to settle for the old again the next day. And tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is going to creep in its petty pace. And we're going to be miserable because we want to live the new life. We are a new creation. The truest part of you wants to be connected to Jesus and experience the newness of life that he makes possible. But we're holding on to the old we're not going to be able to do it. And so I want to give us just an opportunity to start right now. Um, As our communion servers prepare the elements, as the band comes up, I want us to just have a moment to go before the Lord and to just be silent and reflect and to ask him to bring some things to our awareness. Because that's going to be the first step of giving to death the things that belong to death. We have to become aware of them. We have to ask God for forgiveness. We have to confess them to God. We probably have to confess them to a safe person who can help us process and keep us accountable to growth. But it all starts with the willingness to just sit before God and say, search me and show me the things in my life that belong to death that I need to give back to it. Whatever is keeping you from moving forward with God, whatever has you feeling stuck, whatever makes you feel like you could never change, um, whatever's keeping you from the fullness of life, I want you to ask God to reveal it to you. And then we'll pray together and then we'll take communion. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. 
We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.